What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 15 of the Operators Podcast. We're here with my best, oldest friend, someone I admire, someone I adore, Jeremy. He is currently the COO of a brand called Kitsch. Uh, he's founded it with his wife. She's the founder, CEO, Cassandra. Amazing story you're going to hear about. We're talking omni-channel. We're talking sponsorships. We're talking just a bunch of bullshit. So welcome back to the podcast and let's get into it. It all started with a rumor, a whisper about a private WhatsApp chat where nine-figured entrepreneurs swapped insights, information, and deals behind closed doors. And now, for the first time ever, these operators are pulling back the curtain on their clandestine world right here on this podcast. You're about to witness something truly remarkable. A glimpse into the minds and businesses of the world's most successful operators. So sit back, relax, and stay glued to your headphones. The chat is about to begin. Jeremy is who I want to be when I grow up. Like I and I, and I, I, I don't even say that as a joke because I mean Jeremy's probably ten years older than I am. And dude, if I am if I'm Jeremy in ten years, I've fucking made it. So that's that's the grind. That's the path. It was- it was I, it's the it was the surf video of him shredding a wave that he dropped in the chat yesterday. I'm like, Jeremy, you know, you man, like you're like you're killing it and everything, and you can actually surf, which looks Look, so hard. We're the same height, Jewish, Latino <laughs> wife. We have a lot in common, so that's that's what I'm grinding for. Wait, Sean, you're I, Jewish? Yeah. <laughs> That's why he can make yarmulke jokes, and it's not it's not racial. Oh, I thought he was just offside. <laughs> like, yeah, I had no idea. He's doing the rabbi beard. Yeah. Jeremy, have you told them the story about how you like helped, you know, cure some form of cancer because your dog got cancer? Have Have they heard this story? Uh, no, no. Jeremy, Jeremy <laughs> exactly. Like this is Jeremy in a nutshell. He has it's amazing. Okay, anyway, so look, I'm so happy you're on the pod. I know I'm stoked. I I, I can't echo the guys enough, Jeremy. When I, I, people ask me who the, who I think is like one of the best operators out there, I tend to point them to you. I show them your website. They're like, "Wait, I don't get it." And I'm like, "You don't have to. You just need to know that he's a badass." So I I think maybe what we'll do, uh, we've got an agenda, right, guys? And um, Jeremy, we want to hear. I think for everybody listening, like we know a bit of the story, but me, could you give us like the five minute like this is who you are, Kitch. Like you've been at this, Sean, what'd you say, 13 years? Like, could you just start us and give us like, get, give everybody the five minute, 13 year story? Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's not really my story. It's my, it's my wife's story. Um, you know, we're, you know, like Sean said, we're, you know, not just female owned business, but we're um, Latino owned minority owned business. So super super cool like i always say it started with me just watching the voice on on tv sit next to my wife on the couch tying hair ties that's that's literally how it started um and then we'd have like nordstrom bring a you know like a semi-trailer up to our apartment we would just be like yep you're at the right place and we just like bring out the boxes i mean you know you guys ask like well why do i know 
so much about my business or why am I so in the weeds? It's like, I've literally, we have, you know, probably 180 people now who work at Kitsch and I've literally done every job at Kitsch, you know, when you build something like so raw from the ground up, like I was the one printing the packing labels. I was the one taping the boxes. Like I was the, I remember I was like, I, this guy in our, in our building, just like building downtown and it was, um, gosh, they made, um, they made, uh, swimwear and they were, they were kind of closing up and they were selling a pallet jack. And I'm like, Whoa, this, this thing called a pallet jack is really cool. I like showed it to my wife. She's like, you're crazy. But, um, so I've like literally like moved the pallet. I've just done everything, you know, nothing was handed to us. You know, it, it really started with, a better for you hair tie that was like easy for us to make. And it's grown into a bunch of kind of better for your hair products. It's, you know, for what, you know, my wife is really, her vision was really to extend hair care out of just the salon outside of just like shampoo and conditioner. It's like, well, what are you putting your head on? You know, what are you putting your hair on at night? What type of pillow are you sleeping on? How are you drying your hair? How are you brushing your hair? How are you tying it up and holding it up? And so now, yeah, we have, you know, well over a hundred SKUs and we're in, um, you know, probably over, you know, well over 8,000 different, you know, probably over 20,000 retail locations with about 8,000 independent retailers. So we really started in, uh, in wholesale, <laughs> just going to trade shows. I mean, and it's weird and it's weird. Cause like, I mean, you asked why, like, I just, I remember where we came from. Like, I remember trying to bring these hair ties into a salon in, in Beverly Hills and they just like laughed me out of there. And now, <laughs> like, now like, my wife and I walk to work and there's this store in our neighborhood where we walk to work and this, it's a, it's an independent beauty supply store. And the guy, Fred, always like hits me up on the street and he's like, Jeremy, where's my order? Why aren't you selling eye masks anymore? All these questions. And I like literally hand, and he doesn't spend, you know, a tremendous amount of money with us. I will literally hand deliver that guy product. Like that's how much I care. Cause I remember when I couldn't even sell that guy product. Like I, I so remember when, mm. you know, like I so remember being laughed out of this hair salon. <laughs> it's like totally <laughs> scarred me. Um, but you know, I think, I think for us, the, what I always say, about our business is like we sell a lot of little things in a lot of different places and it's all about like diversity for us it's about diversity of product and it's in in having a diverse product offering um you know we're able to have you know a real great diversity of channels that we can sell in because we can sell into like that hair salon that laughed me out of there, but we can also sell products, you know, wellness products to Whole Foods. We can sell products to Alta Beauty, who's, you know, one of our most cherished customers. And then, you know, we can sell products like Paper Source because we made products that have really giftable packaging. Um, and, you know, we can sell, you know, at Walgreens as well. So, um, it's, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just a really, uh, I don't know. It's a weird business. Like you said, like people look at our website and they're like, what, you know, they really do that much in sales. And we're like, yeah, ha ha. We do. So Sean, Jared, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was going to say Jeremy is the operator's operator, right? You know how some people are like comedians, comedians, like they're not the most famous person, but like in the industry, they're respected. That's Jeremy, right? Like the story he's telling right now, a 13 year, I mean, even longer, I don't know, journey of doing stuff by hand, hand delivering orders, right? And then building this this empire, right? That you can find kitsch products in every town in America. And Probably every listener has kitsch products in their house right now, right? Like before I met Jeremy, there's a whole drawer full of them, right? If it's the masks or if it's the hair ties or it's the pillow sheets, if my wife has it all. Uh, and we, you guys were talking about like what type of business kitsch is, right? So Jeremy, you know, do you think of yourself as a beauty brand? Do you think of yourself as a wellness brand? Like how do you think about yourself? we think of ourselves as like a beauty lifestyle brand, you know, Cassandra, my wife, who's, who's the CEO and founder of our business always says, you know, we want to be like your beauty best friend who's like there to support you throughout your day. Um, so really like any kind of, and, and she calls them like these like little kitsch moments to like get you through the day, you know, maybe like, you know, say, you know, in, say you're like a working mom and you're like, you know, scrambling, trying to get your kids out the door. You haven't had time to, you know, style your hair with your, you know, you probably don't even have a Dyson air wrap or whatever that thing is. And, um, you know, but like you can use one of our clips or you can use our heatless curling set, or you can use like our quick dry towel to kind of like get you out of a pinch. And it's really not about taking beauty products like so 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 seriously like our our brand is very inclusive it's very accessible it's 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 about like people who just want these little moments to feel beautiful throughout their day rather than like oh i'm going on a red carpet and i need you know this like high-end makeup face and makeup and like the whole thing because most people just aren't doing that like that's not real life for people (laughs) And, and talk about something that uh, that is trend agnostic, beauty best friend. Like how many people focused on, you know, just making stuff for, you know, like I, I'm going to use like, you know, face creams or foundations or lipstick or whatever, right? But by focusing on like, yeah, we're beauty adjacent, right? We're, we're the best friend of, to, to, to the beauty aisle. I mean, it doesn't matter what's in trend or out of trend. Like these are functional products everybody needs. It's yeah, everyday I'm, goods. That's actually the genius of it is like it is it's it's small things in lots of places that it's unreal at how like that jeremy like that is genius man from a channel everything about that is great because it's like it's the it almost reminds me i don't know if you like the whole like you want to be the pickaxe person not the gold digger like your products are like they're they're not like right here but they're just right there like they're right beside and that is actually the brilliance of the whole thing um, right. I mean, we, we saw, you know, Glossier on, on the rise up as like the hot beauty brand. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Jones Road Beauty is the new hot beauty brand. Right. And like, there's always like those are coming and going, but by, by being beauty adjacent, right. I mean, I mean, Kitsch can, can stay relevant for 13 years or whatever. So I love that. Can we, uh, Jeremy, can you, I want to go back to something you said, which is like, you're an 8,000 independent retail doors 
Could you unpack that a bit? And then maybe Mike, I saw your face just like go, what the fuck when you said that? So like, Jeremy, could you unpack that a bit? And then maybe Mike, give us like, you look like you're in pain when you heard it and give He's us your take. On way too point. little gray hair to be in that many independent Yeah, and Jeremy, doors. you look way too young to be in that many doors. So yeah, could you tell us like, how, how does that work? Uh, just as much as you're willing to share. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, we, first of all, like none of this was like, intentional like we just my <laughs> wife had made products she liked and we just sold them to people who would take them like you know, <laughs> i just want to be honest like we didn't have this whole business plan. Like, we're going to attack the eight thousand independent beauty retailer the the retailer market and that's how we're going to win it was just it was just effort over time but i mean one of the things that like i think this really shifted around like 2016 2017 like we I started to feel like, or maybe even closer to like 2018, 2019, like I started to see a lot of my friends who got into Amazon, like, so this is like a very Mike thing. Like I saw people who got into Amazon, like so early and I was like, so frustrated. Like, why didn't I, cause we were around <laughs> since 2010, like we should have been on Amazon mm -hmm. and like, you know, 2013, 2014, we just never invested in it. We didn't understand it. We didn't put the right people in place. So like right around, I think like 2018, this this wholesale platform, and I'm gonna this is like a big plug for them, I guess. I I really like them. They're, they're they've been really good to our brand. But um, there's this wholesale platform uh, marketplace called Fair F A I R E that launched, and they took away a lot of the problems, which is like, how do I want to go chasing down, you know, a bunch of independent retailers for like a $250 order to send me a check? Like that's not, that's not scalable. And they really made that business scalable. So like we early adopted onto fair. And then what we did is in COVID, we sold a bunch of masks. So like every retailer <laughs> needed these cloth masks. So we like opened a ton of retailers um unfair through these masks and they've just continued they've just continued to uh purchase from us but it was like it was very much i would say like just really really being an early adopter and also just kind of going to like the trade shows and getting all the emails and contact information for you know 10 years of going to trade shows setting up these booths just so miserable you know, so Jeremy about Amazon, right? Cause I'm sure a lot of people listening, uh, either do sell on Amazon, right. And, and they've benefited from, from, you know, the, the, the rise of Amazon specifically with the pandemic or they don't. And like, they probably want to get into it. So you thought you were too late to Amazon in 2018 and 2019. And do you still think, or, or, or like, I mean, you've obviously sell on Amazon, you're super successful there. So like, how did you overcome that? Um, no, I mean, it was just, I mean, how do we overcome Amazon? I mean, it was, it was a struggle for a long time until we could kind of get like our, our digital team going. I mean, our, we've, you know, since built a really, really strong Amazon team, but I think even the Amazon team will admit that a lot of, a lot of our success on Amazon is, is, is riding the coattails of, of the, the marketing team and our Facebook spend and the off Amazon traffic that we're, you know, driving over there. Well, and that's what I want to talk about today. I, I know it's, it's on the agenda for us is that 
I think Jeremy's business is a fantastic example of how omni-channel can become just this unbelievable flywheel and that in any omni-channel business, you're going to have parts of your channel structure that you're stronger at. You have more expertise. You've been there earlier um, and parts that, that are weaker. But when you really do get represented across a bunch of different channels, it's amazing how they start to work together and the rising tide kind of lifts all the ships. Uh, we've certainly seen that. How uh, for us, ironically, our Amazon was D to C. That we figured out D to C last out of all of our. Uh, may, uh, maybe you can make the argument that specialty, which is going to be a big focus for us next year, is last. But ironically, it was it was D to C. Um, was the last of the really big channels for us to figure out, even though we had a lot of e-commerce experience. Um, and it was exactly what you're talking about, Jeremy. It was getting the brand to such a place as a result of millions and millions of units sold through Amazon and Target and all these other channels where we were finally able to really make it all come together and work. Um, and so I'd love to talk this episode a lot more about Omnichannel because I think that that's, we haven't talked much about it on the podcast so far. And I think especially, you know, Sean's, uh, we've all talked at length about how uh, D2C isn't dead, but D2C, the tailwinds aren't really there anymore. It's not like D2C is easy mode. And a lot of people are trying to figure out, okay, how do I actually build out other channels? How do I diversify myself? Is there a way to unlock this flywheel? And you're one of the operators that's done it the very best. All right. As you guys know, if you're a listener of the podcast, we are fans of entrepreneurs. We're fans of people building stuff, even in tough verticals. And so we're a big fan of Sendline around here. Sendline has built something uh, pretty special pretty quickly, and they've done it the right way. They've done it by serving customers and being awesome at what they do. I actually talked to Jimmy yesterday, uh, and one of the things I asked him is I was like, hey, what what motivates you, man? Why are you building this business? And he was telling me he's a second generation American. His parents immigrated and he's like, it's for my kids, man. I'm trying to build a, a bigger future for my kids. And it's like, I can get behind that. And I, I think everybody listening to this podcast probably can as well. So we are going to be a part of Sin Lane is having an event in San Diego, which is not a terrible place to spend some time, uh, September 18th and 19th. And you are going to get all of us doing a live pod at the event. So we're looking forward to seeing many of you there. If you're on the fence about coming, just know that we will be there and we will be talking live. We do not have the ability to edit out uh, Sean's colorful euphemisms in real time. So you will get the unfiltered, unvarnished version of the Operators Podcast uh, sponsored by Sunline. Beautiful, sunny San Diego. You can catch the Operators Podcast live. <laughs> Grab tickets at sendlane.com. Yeah, it's the whole 8,000 doors thing. It's like when you think about that, that's so much marketing muscle on its own. You know, and, mm -hmm. and I, Jeremy, the thing I know that you're, you like to, I feel like you're like the Joe Rogan of operators. Like you're pretending like you're not, there's no thinking being put into this, but you're like secretly very smart. <laughs> you know, they're like, I don't know, there's no strategy. I'm like, uh huh. So uh, I think, I wonder, if maybe we can chat about this, Mike is, and Jeremy, I'd love maybe for you to start us off. Do you have, so of all the channels that you sell in, do you have one or two that feel like lead dominoes? Like that if, if we do better here, 
they float the rest, you know, or is it truly like an orchestra where they all just seem to perform in unison and none of them are like the, obviously like the, the big pusher and maybe Jeremy, you can start Mike, Sean, you guys follow. Is that cool? Yeah, that's great. All right. What do you think, Jeremy? Yeah, I'm happy to kick it off. I mean, I think, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of D2C people ask me like, well, how do I get into, you know, retail? And then the first question they ask is, well, can I just get like the buyer's email from you? <laughs> like, man, that is not going to help you at all. It doesn't work. Like, yeah. Like, that's going to hurt you because you're going to sound like yeah. an idiot and you're going to completely let them down. And like, I, I think when you say, you know, Matt, like talking about it being an orchestra, it, it it's kind of like that. And it's kind of like really wanting, really operating these channels as different business units. Because if you try to apply like, you know, Shopify D, D, DTC type approach to wholesale, you're going to fail. If you try to apply a DTC approach to Amazon, you're going to fail. Like Amazon is completely different from, you know, Shopify running that type of business. It's completely different. The advertising is different. Like, even the way you merchandise the pages is different, I think. And, and same with wholesale. Like, even with wholesale, it's like, we have a team that just does drug, that just does, like, CVS and Walgreens. Because the products that sell at CVS and Walgreens and the way to approach a customer at CVS and Walgreens is different than how to sell a customer at Whole Foods, which is different than, you know, selling into Urban Outfitters. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much, like, kind of, you think about Urban Outfitters, it's very, like, trend. Like, like they'll take something where like, we have an idea for something and they'll just like take it. Whereas like Walgreens is like, okay, we need like three years of sales data to make sure that this isn't going like, to fall out of favor, you know? So, so we, we really had to say, okay, like we had to hire experts and build teams and all these different things. And finding good people is hard, but finding like good people for like, essentially like, like multiple different kind of business units and companies is, is very, very hard. And then finding people with, who don't have an ego, who are really team players, who are willing to communicate and support each other. That's really tough too. So I'm really grateful for the team that we have in a lot of the leaders of our, of our divisions. Like, it's so cool to hear like some of the folks on our team that are like, I don't care if, if, if I, you know, my marketing, my VP of marketing is like, if I drove the sale to Amazon, even though like, I'm not really overseeing that business, like that's great. It's money for kitsch. You know, if I drove the business to Walgreens, great. That's money for kitsch. Like, you know, same with the, you know, the wholesale team. Like if we drove awareness, that's, you know, going to get someone to order on Shopify. Like that's great. You know, it's so you know, for us, I think, I think you really have to like build the team to support the, the business and wholesale is, is, is slow. And, um, it's, it's, you know, D to C like you could just, 
you know, I wish I could increase my sales at Alta by just like spending an extra, you know, hundred grand a day on Facebook. (laughs) It just doesn't work that way, you know? Um, So it's, you know, like I said, I mean, you really just have to like complete it's, it's, and it's hard, especially being a business owner, like for, for Cassandra and I, and overseeing it, it's like, okay, we were like focused on, you know, say one day I'm focused on DTC. It's like, I have to completely wipe my brain out and then be like, okay, when I talk to the team about like, you know, business with Alta or business with Target or business with Whole Foods, like I have to completely wipe my brain out. But it's, it's also amazing how the teams, you know, really do interact, especially for retention, like with FAIR, like the, the retention team for our website talks to you know the independent wholesale team and they're like hey we made this really cool email and the wholesale team is like great we can launch we can launch that email on fair so it, it really is about you know a lot of communication as well which is really really <clears throat> as you Mike, grow like it's hard well so a couple of things that jeremy said that i think are worth kind of defining for the the audience the first is that the reason why omnichannel can be a successful strategy is because you believe it's incremental. You believe that you are actually getting in front of customers who are making buying decisions that you wouldn't already be with the channels that you're in. And if you're if it's not incremental, if you're just, you know, getting your stuff in front of the same exact customer and you're doing the same like Jeremy said you're doing the same offerings, like why would that work? That that would never work obviously. So the first question is what are these additional channels that I can get into? where I really am getting in front of people that I want to buy that I'm not already reaching. And then I I think it's really important that you think about your, so in that way, like they can be like in concert with each other, right? Like that, listen, it's a different person that buys a water bottle at Walmart then comes to our website and buys. It's, I'm not saying it's a hundred percent different, but it is those, that Venn diagram doesn't have a lot of overlap in the middle. And that's great. You know, that's why Walmart makes a lot of sense for us as a channel. Um, And I think that the tension that arises, and Jeremy kind of alluded to that, within an organization, the tension becomes you have all these teams that are focused on growing their channel. And everybody is kind of concerned with what will work best in our channel. Sometimes it's totally different products. But a lot of times it creates some competition and ambiguity about what offer should go where and how can you best acquire the most users for the entire, the most customers for the entire business while um, doing good enough in each of your channels? Uh, this happens to us all the time. Amazon's like, we want this product. We can sell, we can retail this product on $29.99 on Amazon. Um, and my chief sales officer is like, well, Walmart wants it, but they want to retail it at $22.99 and Target wants it and they want it, but, you know, with two lids and they want it at $24.99. So what do we do? Right. And uh, we, we've all heard the term before, the, the channel conflict. So channel conflict is a real thing outside where it's like, how do I offer and merchandise my products to customers and all these different settings? But it's also, as Jeremy was alluding to, channel conflict is a real thing inside as well in many organizations because each of the channels kind of wants to optimize for their thing. And sometimes that can pull in different directions. And these were the first things that we had to really manage. I mean, a really easy example of this is, if you sell a SKU, and let's just say to Target, um, something that Amazon can scrape. If you sell a SKU that is on Amazon to a major retailer that they can scrape, 
and that retailer has it at a lower price, Amazon will scrape that and Amazon will drop your price. If you're in the marketplace, they'll either tell you, hey, you can't sell it at the price you want to because we scraped this other price. If you're uh, 1P like us, they'll just drop your price, you know, and then start saying, hey, we can't buy it at your wholesale anymore. So that's, a, you know, a really tangible example of conflict, uh, ten- channel conflict that can happen in the channels. Um, but there's a lot of trying to work out internally, okay, how do we play in all of these places where they're working together? Because if they're not hitting different customers or if they're warring with each other, then it starts to be an exercise in futility is kind of what we've learned. And that's, that's a lot of the dance. What I wanted to say was there's a reason why Jeremy, in my opinion, is unbeatable, right? And we're talking about this omni-channel stuff, right? So there's, there's, there's three buckets where sales can come from. D to C. What is D to C? It's your website or it's your stores, right? Like that is the uh, Wall Street-owned definition of D to C, right? And then there's marketplace, the third bucket. It's Amazon, it's Etsy, it's eBay. It's selling your own products on the internet, right? But not on your website. And there's this third bucket, wholesale, right? And everyone from the D2C world or the marketplace world thinks wholesale is one thing, selling your products to some physical retailer. And I think, I think you know, maybe, maybe we missed it or, you know, Jeremy just, it's in his vocabulary, so he goes right over it. But he's like, yeah, you know, I sell differently into drug than I do into, you know, a uh, big box or whatever else. And it's like, no one else knows the term drug. No one, no one understands that drug is 3,000 retail doors and you have to sell into them differently with different teams and different buying. And that's why Jeremy can have end caps in Walmart and end caps in Sephora, right? The, the, the only brand doing that, right? He can be at my local bookstore and he can be at, you know, Urban Outfitters. He's the only person that can do that because he's, he, as much as we like to think we're experts at D2C or Amazon or whatever else, and we know all of these like hacks and tricks and Facebook ads or whatever else, there's just like decades of knowledge about how to sell into legacy retailers that Jeremy spent 13 years perfecting, right? And hiring a team to perfect. So, you know, yeah. we're talking about the, omnichannel. The, the language is not the same. It's not one the same. Thing, it, it's not the same. And here's another thing. You're living in the physical world. And so things matter that don't matter digitally. So a, a perfect example, a retailer will say, I have four feet of shelf. I have an end cap. I want to fill that end cap. And I'm not going to fill that hair, that end cap with, you know, uh, just four feet of hair ties. I'm not going to do it. Right. Uh, I want to have a 10 item end cap or whatever. And that's where the product diversity that they have at Kitsch really works in their favor. And I mean, I think, if, if anybody's listening to this and it's like, you want to think about what does intelligent product expansion look like? Kitsch is a great example. They found one core amazing product and then they've kind of incrementally pushed outward from that for years and years and years. And now they've got this whole ecosystem of products that are built around your hair and that works awesome in a physical retail where you can say, hey, you've got an end cap. Well, I've got 50 things I can pair together and I can make something just for you, Ulta, that's awesome and really, you know, goes in line with whatever theme you're kind of pushing in stores and looks great and is unique to you. And this is another thing we're saying is that a a lot of specialty, I mean, Jeremy could speak to this probably better than I could, but a lot of independent specialty retailers, they, if you sell on Amazon, some of them will just not buy from you. They're like, I will not buy from anybody that sells on Amazon. Because I can't, you know, I can't compete with them on price or whatever. 
Um, but even if you get to the, the targets of the world, they're really concerned with, am I getting something unique or special to me? Because I need to give people a reason to get in their car and drive to Target as opposed to, you know, clicking on the, the buy button on Amazon. And so the more that you can do that, the better your pitch is. We, we've had the most success when we've been able to come to a retail partner, a physical retail partner with something exciting and say, this is for you. This is an exclusive that we've built for Target. In fact, I'll tell you one, one example of this. We started selling Disney in Target last year and we, did, uh, an ex- we, we didn't say, we couldn't say, hey, we'll give you Disney drinkware exclusivity. But we said, what we can do is we can come up with designs that literally the only place they can buy them is in your store. And we're going to, we're going to really lean into this partnership. And in return, they were like, we want to do signage that's in the aisle. We want to, if you, if you will pay for it, we will put these massive signs up in the aisle that talk about the exclusive product or whatever, because it's a story that they want to tell. And it was hilarious how it rolled out. Like we paid for these signs and you know, the shelf has several layers. They put us on the top shelf and then they put this massive sign uh, hanging down from the top shelf where you like couldn't even see what was on the second shelf. One of our competitors must have been just livid, right? Because like you couldn't even see their product. All you could see was this sign of ours that was dropping down in front of their product talking about this you know, collaboration that we'd done with Target and Disney. But what makes all that possible is that we're able to tell a story to Target and Target's able to tell a story to its customers of like, hey – we're going to have things from Simple Modern and Disney that nobody else is going to have. And that's why you, you want to come here. You want to shop here instead of going online or whatever. And anybody in physical retail is trying to think about that particular problem. I have to drive people to my store. And does your brand help me do that? I'll give you uh, can I give you guys an example of how I think this like the Jeremy calling out the each wholesale is not one thing. It's multiple things. And that each channel in wholesale for a brand mm-hmm. requires a very spe- like specific attention. I'll give you the example from Lomi right now that when I heard it, I wanted to jump off the fucking building. Okay. So we make, we make this thing. You can see them behind us. If you're watching this, you can see it. You've seen what a Lomi looks like. It's a certain size. We design the thing for the customer. Well, we get to the finish line with a very large mass market retailer and the problem we run into is it doesn't fit on their fucking shelf. Mm. And it's not that it doesn't fit on their shelf. It doesn't fit on their shelf two by two and too mm. deep. So I, I am actually at an R&D level making a different sized machine that will work in mass market Absolutely. retail at a, diff, at a different price point. Granted, that's a big part of it, right? But Mike, to speak to like they want something that's uniquely theirs, there's also constraints that D to C brands are not aware of until you start dealing with these guys. And ours came down to two and a quarter inches. You need to find two and a quarter inches on your box, which means I had to change the machine. <laughs> Matt, you, you are spitting some serious wisdom and everybody listening to this needs to really think about what you're saying. When you've been in the digital world, if anything, the only thing you're thinking about with your product is weight, so you can get under a weight threshold or a size threshold for Amazon. That's all people think about. And we thought about at one point, you know, that was all our business. And so it's just like, hey, how do we make sure that we're on this tier of shipping costs with FBA and not this tier? But when you get into physical retail, every inch matters. What I have been told by Walmart is that 
one of the ways they evaluate every product is on a sales and profitability per like inch per cubic inch of space that it takes up. Right. Yeah. And that these things matter. And so the, like we, we literally had an example where we designed a 64 ounce water bottle and we made it, um, we could go tall or we could go wide and we went wide and it was a terrible decision. I mean, we're still stuck in this legacy decision, but it's like, you should never go wide. You should go as tall as the shelf allows because that's where we're selling that product. And all it's doing is it's making it less productive. And what the, the way that retailers, you got to think about it. It's like real estate. Okay. Every buyer is given a, a, a piece of land. And their management is basically saying, here's how much rent we extracted from this piece of land last year. And your job is to make that number go up 5%, 7%, 10%, whatever. And we're going to evaluate you on these two or three key metrics. Margin's going to be one of them. And then, you know, kind of how much rent you're able to extract from your space is going to be another one. And when you're trying to sell to a physical retailer, the entire pitch is, I'm going to help you to earn more rent out of the space you have than you did before. And if you don't have a product that's built around maximizing the physical space that you get, then you are going to have a really tough time doing that. You know, and even Jeremy, you might speak to this, but like you guys make use of hanging tags, you know, like you, you hang some things and some things can sit on mm -hmm. the shelf, even things like that. When a product's versatile enough that they can put it on a peg or it can be on a shelf, these are the kind of things that matter. And I just, I'm really glad that you brought it up, Matt, because when you haven't ever had to think that way, it's just so easy to miss it. You know, for us, I'll give you another really simple example. We have coffee mugs that have handles and we have coffee mugs that don't. We don't sell coffee mugs with handles in mass retail anymore, simply because their width, they're 50% wider, right? And so their, their like efficiency profile is just not good enough. Whereas if they don't have the handle, it is. And so we've, we've needed to make that, that switch, but it took us four years of banging our head against the wall to really understand all these dynamics. Yeah. I mean, this is great. Jeremy, I'll go ahead. No, I, that's, it's a big product development question. And so we do like a grid and we're like, okay, here's all the products we like. And then we have like each channel and we're like, okay, does this check the box for each channel? And sometimes we can't get a hundred. We can't, I, I don't think we really, most of the times we don't get a hundred percent, but we're like, okay, what is it going to take to launch a product? Like we really only need to have it hit in like, you know, 80%, 70% of our channels. We don't even need to have it hit in a hundred percent. Do you make so products, just, Jeremy, that are not for every channel at this point? Yeah. Do you like absolutely. intentionally make that decision? Yeah. Absolutely. Hmm. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, but that's, that's kind of the fun of watching them kind of play together or sometimes, you know, we'll have, you know, a lot of our products and this is like a lot of our strategy early on with wholesale was like, okay, we want to be at like the cash register counter. We want to be like these point of purchase items because they're easy. Like people don't need to think about it, but like those products are generally like super low AOV and horrible for like D to C. Like, you know, I can't spend like $40 acquisition costs on like an $8 product. Like it's, you know, you're going to get burnt out. So then we started thinking. That'll never work. Oh. Yeah. But then we were like, oh, you can do these things called bundles. 
like that was like my big genius idea. So like you get to play. So then like all of a sudden, all these little incremental items became like value adders for our bundles that we do on the site. All right, I'll talk about Fulfill. I, Sean Frank, CEO of Ridge, use Fulfill. It is our ERP solution. It does everything from ERP to EDI. I am not an investor in Fulfill. I have used Fulfill since 2020. Uh, we got a quote from NetSuite. They wanted a million dollars. I don't know. I hear people get quotes from NetSuite for 60 grand. They really quoted me $1.1 million for a setup. So I don't know what the fuck is going on there. Uh, but if you know anything about me, I'm one of the cheapest people on earth. So I did not go with NetSuite. I went with Fulfill. We run all of our order management through there, right? So we have... Globally, over eight warehouses, all orders get rooted through our ERP, which is Fulfill. We also do all of our wholesale orders, so they have a they have a hookup to all of our EDI. So we can switch warehouses easy if we have to because all the integration is done at the ERP level. It does all of our accounting or pushes stuff into QuickBooks, whatever else. So I've been using Fulfill for a very long time. If you want to learn more about Fulfill, just go ahead and email them. We'll, dro we'll drop an email in the description. They'll, they'll get on the phone. They'll talk to you. Very awesome team. Uh, and maybe if you want to do omni-channel stuff, you'll consider Fulfill as your ERP. You know, listening to you, Jeremy, I got a question for all three of you guys on this. Well, actually, first, so I have a statement just from the past episode. Mike, I now have a simple Let's modern... Go. Uh, mug. Let's go. To drink out of. A, you've seen the it's, line. It's not the Jeremy's got the handle one. I'm Jeremy and Sean. Sean's not holding something up because he's probably got a Yeti right off screen. But I know who my true friends are. I got a cup of water. He's got actual. Oh my gosh. All right. So that's statement one. Uh, my actual real question, just because I I felt like pointing out that I'm no longer a bad friend. And mostly because Mike just sent me this thing. <laughs> He's like, here you, you go, were, man. You were like the most expensive customer acquisition cost of all time, Matt. I had to develop <laughs> right. a friendship over multiple years and then agree to do a podcast with you. But I finally gotten you in. But now I'm repping the brand. Uh, I just want to say I have personally ordered thousands of Simple Modern Water bottles. So. <laughs> Sean, Sean is team a real friend. I'm giving him crap. But he is, he is on He's a real friend. That's I right. Paid I paid for cups to give out at my wholesale party just so you maybe get uh, some deals out of it. So, hey, look, that's I'm, right. I'm putting the work. Hey, that's hey, awesome. Look at this right here, baby. Let's go every day. <laughs> yes. And and I got the keychain too. You got you got me with both. So, oh my god, I'm a big rich fan. You know it. Uh, okay, so I, I've a. It's so funny. I, I'm like Jeremy. It's it is true to what Sean said earlier. Once I got to know you, uh, I realized that there's kitsch shit all over my house. Like I have kitsch, like my wife's got kitsch stuff. And I find, like I saw her brushing my daughter's hair the other day and I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, that's a kitsch brush. She's like, what? And I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> like I've met him and his wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sean, I'm actually a terrible Ridge customer. My wife bought the Ridge and the, kick, the Ridge wallet, the original Kickstarter Ridge wallet. And I've never replaced it because it's such a good product. <laughs> like it, you it have just, a you have a Kickstarter Ridge wallet. Have, Are you serious? Like the, the That's OG. like next level. That is Dude, that I'm is like, next level. You're like an I've original customer. I have actually. I bet you, Sean. I'm responsible for selling like hundreds of those fucking things. Because like I showed when I first got it, I, it was the coolest wallet ever. And I remember, like, I was living in Toronto at the time, 
and at that I'm a much younger and I had a nightlife and like a social life and I would show everybody. It was like such a hey check this out product because it wasn't that like piece of shit Costanza thing that everybody else had at the time. Anyway, that's my like that, product. That stuff you matters all have awesome when stuff. you build a brand. That stuff matters. Like Jeremy mentioned this earlier, like there are people that just kind of laugh at you at first and are like, yeah, you even have friends who like wouldn't carry your stuff. They're just like, they know what you do and they still like come over to your house with a Yeti and you're like, what, you know, like, okay, fine. Like, I guess you're just kind of rubbing it in my face that, you, you know, you'd rather buy some anonymous brand than support my thing. And so to me, there's some stuff out there that I know it was like very early days, like the, you know, the colors or like the way we did the logo. At one point we did the logo, like all the way across. It was horrific. But like, those are the people I remember those to this day. Right. Yeah. Like all the people totally. that bandwagoned on, it's like, that's fine. That's great. Thanks for the support. But especially the people like before it was cool, like that really supported, I will always remember those people. So I think, I think the Kickstarter story is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. The the new thing we're doing to boost LTV is we're just breaking into people's houses that have rig walls and stealing. <laughs> stealing them. <their> so, <laughs> yeah. You need like a mission impossible. Like they just self destruct. They just explode after, you know, <laughs> a certain you number gotta of You got to stop selling the air tag on them. Because like with hair ties, people, you know, oh, yeah. we were with, um, we were, I was dropping my daughter off at preschool and one of, one of the moms came up to me and she's like, I need more of your hair ties. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I keep losing them all the time. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> like, that's, that's why point, we're yeah. <laughs> because Apple lose that's our This is the AirPods of hair care. Yeah. Jeremy, Jeremy's coming up with biodegradable hair ties. Yeah. The, he's going to, in, in the name of the environment, he's going to make these things biodegrade in like three months. From They're going to go point. away. Yeah. Okay. Exactly I, have a, right. I have an omni-channel question for all of you guys because Jeremy, listening to you talk, maybe I just think of this because I my business partner, one of my co-founders, came out hit, like for 25 years. He was in the toy business. I think I've mentioned this to a couple of you guys. Uh, like multi-nine-figure business, just huge toy manufacturer, right? All retail, no D to C, and he has been. I think it's actually like physically etched into my brain now to always think in terms of like a section in a store. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mike, you kind of mentioned it that like, you know, like you're never going to put like an end cap full of like just hair ties. Right. And Jeremy, right. you have the product breadth to go in and say like, no, we could do a four foot end cap and here's what we could do. That's like all around hair care. Do you like, do all of you guys, when you're looking at wholesale, like whatever you want to call it, are you thinking that way now? Like, are you looking at it and saying like, I don't want to just go in with one skew. I want to go into a target or a Walmart or one of these guys or, or independent beauty or whatever. And I want as much space as I can get. I, and I make I it think easy. That you, you have to be making decisions where you're looking at first and foremost from how do the, how does the buyer win? Because if you don't, what you end up doing is trying to kind of uh, square peg round hole this thing where it's like, well, this is good for us and it's good for us on D to C. It's good for us, uh, you know, on Amazon. And so we're just going to kind of force it in with Target and we're going to kind of make it work, even though it's not really a clean fit in their assortment or with their merchandising plan or it's kind of on top of what somebody else is doing. It just doesn't work well. So we do a lot of thinking backwards from what do we already see on the shelf? What are they trying to accomplish? And how do we build around their goals when we're in the product development 
stage. And as Jeremy mentioned, increasingly what that means is that product development is multifaceted where some of the time like, hey, we are building this product for this channel or these two or three channels. It's just not going to work in all our channels or it's going to be really minimal in its contribution in D2C and Amazon, but this is going to be great for Walmart or at Walmart and Target. And so I, I think you have to, and I think it's just an entrepreneurial like pitfall to think a lot about what do you like and what's good for you. And then to just try and concoct a value proposition for other people that's not inherently there. Jeremy, what about you, man? I mean, do, you, do you guys go that far? We, you know, it's interesting. We, and I would recommend this to anyone, like have a shelf, like have a shelf set up at your at your office or wherever you are and take your products and actually see like what that would look like. Cause I remember a guy, an Amazon seller came to me and he's like, I sell bug zappers and toilet plungers and spatulas. And he's like, they'll do so well at Walgreens. And I was like, put them on a shelf and let me know like how that merchandises for you. <laughs> yeah. like, so for us, for us, I think where we actually like where, and, and we had this incredible buyer at Alta who who really trusted us. And that was like one of our first big retail opportunities. And this is still like our biggest partner today is like what where where I think retail kind of struggled in our category is like you said, like an end cap full of hair ties. Well, that's like what they were doing. They had like three legacy mm -hmm. brands in private label. And it was like, and someone would hit the aisle. And they were like, well, which hair tie do you want? And I think you have to ask yourself, like, and is that the question you want to be asking your customer? Like, which $5 pack of hair ties do you want? So, like, when we came into Ulta, we were like, okay, we're going to have, like, this kind of tell more of a story of, like, totally unique and different products. And it's like oh, you know, I'm going to use this hair towel when I get out of the shower and I'm going to use the shower cap on the days that I don't wash my hair. And I'm going to use this brush when I'm, you know, brushing my hair and I'm going to use this hair tie or when I go to the gym, I'm going to want to clip it up. So I'm going to use this clip. So like where, where our business does best and, and since we've been able to build like a real brand with brand equity is, you know, folks now have have trust in our brand they have trust in the quality of our product they know who we are to to somewhat of a degree or they just find shit in their house and like oh yeah that's that brand i like but um when they you know when they find out when they when they hit our retail displays they can put like four eight different things in their basket we wanted you know women and customers to ask themselves like how which products can i use throughout my day and so they could actually buy like four or eight different products. They didn't need to, you know, have to ask them which one of these like $5 products I want. That's not the right question. And Mike, to your point, those sorts, when you have your customer asking themselves a different question, those are the things that bring incrementality to, you know, the aisle that the buyer is trying to merchandise for. And so that's, I'm, that's I'm glad you important. use that word. I think incrementality is maybe the most under talked about aspect of running a good business, like actually being thoughtful about incrementality. I mean, especially once you get to a certain scale, uh, Matab was talking about this uh, last night on Twitter, like that a lot of marketers don't think about incrementality testing at all with when they're doing marketing, but 
it's really true. And a lot of the biggest mistakes that we've made in omnichannel and in physical retail have been when we just said, oh, uh, you know, this is a good item and this, this other thing's a good item. And of course, we should sell both these things. And we didn't stop and think, okay, but are they complementary or are they just kind of dueling banjos? And where you do best in physical retail is when you're able to string together several complementary products where, like you said, Jeremy, somebody can come over and kind of get pulled into the whole kitsch story. Like, oh, these are great hair ties. And, oh, man, look at this. You know, this is a dry shampoo bar. I've heard those are cool. I'm going to I'm gonna pick that up. And, oh, like, oh, there's this, you know, whatever. And before they know it, they've picked up four things. And the retailer wins big, obviously, because instead of somebody grabbing a $5 hair tie, they just put $35 of stuff in their cart. But a lot of it had to do with like this idea of incremental and complementing products that when you had the customer's attention that you were able to sell them on this larger story and show them several things that were relevant. Well, I want to do a thing called uh, like the D to C dictionary. All right. So <laughs> we have <laughs> we have this term wholesale that we uh, just throw around. Right. And we've already identified that like saying wholesale is like saying marketplace or it's like saying, you know, ad network, like inside of wholesale, there's a million different things. Right. And so I think we should just lay out those opportunities for any of the listeners. Right. Uh, you know, Jeremy's big in drug, right? So like, you know, you said Walmart, you said CVS, those are two players. Ridge really only does specialty. Right. And what specialty is, is, you know, it's Nordstrom's it's, you know, uh, lifestyle fashion, like sure. any of those people, like, yeah, Shields is a great, great partner of ours. Urban Outfitters is a partner of Jeremy's. Um, you know, there's Mass Market, which is the Targets. It's the Walmarts of the world. There, then there's Club, which is Sam's Club and Costco. Uh, there's Convenience, which is all the 7-Elevens or gas stations. Uh, Jeremy, you're the expert. So like, what am I missing from that, that, that dictionary definition? I think you would say independent, but I would love to hear more. Um. Yeah, I mean, but even independent, you know, can be broken down. Like we have breakouts for independent as, you know, salon and spa, you know, that's a very unique version of independent versus gift. I mean, the amount of gift stores in independent gifts, gift. And I think we'd lump gift and like kind of bookstores into this, into this, you know, category. So there's like gift and book for us. Um and then there's like fashion boutiques. I mean, the amount of independent fashion boutiques is just wild. So then we have like that customer and they all really buy different products from us. I mean, and then, you know, I don't, I don't know if you hit on the show, um, grocery too, more like a larger scale and groceries is, is like a completely different business because they don't even grocery stores don't even allow you to ship them the goods. Like you have to go through mm -hmm. a distributor and it's this whole mm -hmm. like just mess of a thing to go through a distributor and it hits your margin. And that's, that's completely different. You know, Sean, there's outdoor like there's, so there's home renovation, there's outdoor, like there, uh, in terms of like types, um, we actually Did have one discount, that we label. Sean? Yeah. Sorry, discount is another good one. Discount, like TJ Maxx and some of those, like, uh, those are, I mean, there's a lot of freaking volume that moves through them and, and it's not known by people, but a lot of the really top end brands actually play in discount more than you would think The the value proposition is kind of, if I get this stuff to you, are you going to turn it quick and nobody is going to know we're there? So like, for example, you'll see Yeti, it, you know, Yeti could be in TJ Maxx or some of these, sometimes they just turn it so quickly. It doesn't sit on yeah. the shelves and they don't view it as a liability. Uh, usually it's an inventory moving kind of play. 
uh, it's not, you're not trying to drive profit that way. Another right. one. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Sean. I, I was going to say you, you brought up home, right? So like, you know, uh, home, you, home like, depot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also restoration hardware or, or whoever else, right. Mm-hmm. There's like the whole furniture space. So wholesale is just such a wide breadth. And like, you know, I think so casually we throw out this word wholesale, like talk to DDC brands, like, yeah, we're doing wholesale this year. And it's like, are you on shelves in 7-Eleven or are you on shelves in Home Depot? Those are two totally different things, my man. But do you guys have any more you want to, you want to call out? I, I will say like the way we look at it with loan. So we're like, it's been an interesting journey with like the big bucket of wholesale for us. Cause like we came out super hot. Almost every major retailer was bringing us in. Then they all got screwed by re- like inventory levels, like like fucking upside down hard last year. So then it's been like this slow build now to rego, like to really build back up. Um, but one interesting ch- one way that we've looked at wholesale that's helped quite a bit with us is is it assisted sale or not? Right, and um, so like Sur La Tab does like cooking classes in their stores. So like we can actually have, and like there's certain kitchen stores, they'll actually do that. That way they sell product is you come through for a cooking class, they sell you all the shit in the cooking class. Um, like we're doing Costco Roadshow, like Jason, who's not on here cause he has a real job. Uh, you know, he does Costco Roadshow. That's a, that's an assisted sell. Like that's a demo. And right. that's a I completely mean, different animal. You're right. Than I, I don't know if you put this in the same bucket, but like electronic, right? Like Best oh, Buy is a major, a major fuck, yeah, a major retailer, and it's it's a retailer that like, if you say wholesale, Nordstrom's, Sur La Tab, and Best Buy are three totally different beasts. Uh, yes, I think it, man, they're buying cycles too. Like Jeremy, you you used that word earlier, slow. Like <laughs> holy shit, you guys got to go try mm-hmm. sell something at Home Depot or Lowe's. You thought Mike, you thought Target was slow. Let me, let me show you the horse and carriage. Like that's it's right. insane. <laughs> it's, I, I think it's more moated and that's the advantage is that it's harder to get into a bunch of these places and they're going to be slower to switch, but that can be an advantage. You know, I mean, if you, if you sell on Amazon, it's like you can go from first to fourth on the page in an hour, you know, like the algorithm can move you at any moment. It doesn't work that way at all in physical retail. And so, but the difference is in physical retail, like Matt's saying, basically like you have these very slow processes where like right now we're talking to retailers about what's going to be on shelves from summer 24 to the beginning of summer 25. We are literally talking about things that are 24 months out. And so things don't move quickly. And, And one of the things that comes with that is that you have these kind of more monolithic changes where it's like, okay, we are changing out a bunch of SKUs and we are standing for these things and we better freaking be right because it is going to be, I've got to look 20 up to 24 months in the future and say, do I feel comfortable about that being on the shelf? I can't go, you know, like change out the imagery or change up the offer the way that I can if I throw something out on our website and I don't like it. So there's, there's some pros for sure. It's a lot you get disrupted a lot slower. You disrupt others slower and they disrupt you slower, but there's a lot more pressure on certain decisions and certain pitches. I mean, the other thing I'll say is talk about a business. Oh, sorry, Jeremy. I was going to say, talk about an incremental to an online business, Home Depot. If I'm going to Home Depot, I, I never think about buying wood on Amazon, right? So like talk about 
a true IRL customer is inside Home Depot. So yeah, there's a moat there. Go ahead, Jeremy. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, people always want to start big in wholesale. And I think that's, and I think that's a mistake because like the assumption that people make is, well, it sells well online. It's going to sell well in stores. It's like Mike said, it's a completely different environment and, and in many ways, different customers. So, I mean, I think for us where we became so successful was in those independent retailers. Like we can launch a product in independent retail immediately. You know, we don't need for, you know, Walmart or Alta to change over their, you know, their planogram. Planogram is like basically their plan for the aisle, you know, if, in case anyone doesn't know, but like we don't have to wait for that. But then the advantage we have in doing independent retail is then we can say, hey, this product is on fire in independent retail and you're going to want to buy it from us first. Whereas, you know, the big legacy brands, they don't have that data. They have to wait like two years to, you know, get that product on shelf or even be able to like pitch that product. And then if Walmart doesn't buy it from them, they can't even make it. So, I mean, that's the other advantage of like, of D to C and being omni-channel. And, um, you know, we have the buying power of like a legacy brand, but we have the speed and like nimbleness of an indie brand, you know? And so like where these indie brands can't compete with us is like, they can't compete with us on price. Because like we just have so much more, which are so much more sophisticated, so much more buying power. But yet we have this like indie feel, and we have this marketing engine, and we have this speed. Whereas like you know the the bigger legacy brands, it just you know we've already been selling in for two years by the time they even have a product ready to show. So you know right. you, you just hit on such a huge thing, Jeremy. Like the the. You know, and I see this with, like, right now, the big topic, obviously we're talking about omnichannel and D2C is like, uh, like wholesale omnichannel, like go do that. Right. But like your comment on, you know, you should not start out chasing the big guys. And I'm seeing some brands do this. Like they're basically starting at, Hey, we're launching in Walmart. And I'm like, you're screwed. <laughs> you know, you're a, a 10 million, $20 million company. Like you're fucked Walmart. You're going to get in and you're going to quickly get your ass kicked out. Because you, you're you're going to sell in, you're just not going to sell through. Because the brand can't support national right now. I will say this: Walmart's trying to get better about not doing that because they developed they a reputation. They developed a reputation, and and I've had buyers literally say, "We've pitched things where buyers have said, I don't think you really want that. You know, we don't want to do that. And if you wanted to do that, we would want to know more about your balance sheet. Which to me, that's what partnership really looks like." Because just like you said, Matt, I mean, it is so easy to think the goal of mass retail is to get a buyer to say, I want to buy it. And it is just yeah, like, it no. could not be further from the truth because the goal is for you to sell the right amount of things for them and for it to be a win for them and for it to hit the metrics that they needed to hit. And anything less than that is probably going to be a disaster for you. Yeah. But right. it's, it's just, that's just not the way that people think about it. The quote is selling in is not selling out, right? Like selling in is day one, right? Selling Absolutely. out means you get to day two. Like it's, yeah. I'll, I'll also and if you, you die on one. day one, it will be worse than if you didn't go in there. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You only get one I, shot. I, I just want to double click on something Jeremy said, cause I want to make this point. 
I think it is much easier to be a digital brand that effectively moves to physical retail. Okay, let me let me rephrase that. If you can pull off being a digital brand that moves to physical retail, you can kick some serious tail because you have in your DNA nimbleness and the ability to quickly iterate and release products and stay on trend that these behemoths and these kind of ossified CPG companies that have sold in to the, the mass retailers for a long time, they don't have those skills. So their omni-channel strategy is we're going to take the same roll of toothpaste that we've been selling in Walmart and we're going to put it on Amazon. But if you can have a strategy where you are really using all the advantages of digital and then you are taking that stuff to physical retail – almost of any size, you can take those learnings, then you can win because nothing's faster than digital and nothing is a more on trend than digital. Hmm. The only pushback I'll have on that is my, I hired a chief uh, merchandising officer, Brian, and he comes from the legacy wholesale world in specialty. And he's, he's worked at some DTC brands in the past. And he, I've said this before. He's like, you guys are so selfish. He's like, because yeah, DTC is great. We're fast. We're on trend. We can move. But just like Matt's talking about, just like Mike, you said, we just produced our wholesale book for selling for 2020, Q4 2024, right? And it's like, yeah. it's like we can be fast, we can release new stuff, but they're placing orders on stuff that I decided right now before we have any data. So, Dude, it, it, our, it's a, we're out in 2025 right now, and I and by the end of August, uh, September, I'll be talking 2026 with some. Right. Yeah. And that's like the differences between channels. Spe specialty retail can move the fastest. If yeah. we release something that's hot, like mm -hmm. Shields will be like, we'll take it today. Like just ship it to us. Right. Uh, Buckles like that, you know, Nordstrom's like that. The difference is when you're talking to like, you know, a target of the world, if you have something hot, they're not making space for you. Unless, unless you're Mike, Mike, are they making space for you? Well, what you do is you build a credibility profile. So what you hope is to show, number one, if you're hitting great sell-through metrics and you're leading your category, then they are going to increasingly give credibility to your voice. And when you make recommendations, uh, we have gotten to the point, I think, in our relationship with Target a lot of times where we can say, hey, this is going to work. Like based on our internal data and based on what we've done, like this is going to work. And even if it, it feels iffy to you, we really think this is worth uh, – we, we had a conversation just this week with Walmart where they're like, we think this bottle should be fourteen ninety eight, And we're like, yes, but we're not going to sell it to you for a wholesale where that makes sense. If you will buy it at this wholesale and put it at seventeen ninety eight, it will work. We feel confident. Three months ago, I don't think the buyer would have gone for it. Today, she's like, okay, you know, like I've seen enough from you credibility-wise that I'm willing to test it. So I think you earn the right – for the retailer to lean in. But of course, like when you've not had a strong sales profile or you don't have like an established relationship for somebody and you say, Hey, I want you to, you know, kind of take a leap of faith with me. It's like, why are they going to do that? Right. And so you, you start, you methodically build this thing. You methodically build it through performance. Even if the buyers change out and you're selling to a, a different buyer every year, they have all that data and you can gradually build that, hey, we bring recommendations that perform really well and have helped your predecessors to get promoted or to do well in their career. And so you can trust us. And it's easy for people to forget this. Like with a buyer, like their career and their career progression depends upon the, the decisions they make and whose recommendations they take, right? So if they take your recommendations and it helps their career do well, like they're going to love you, right? 
And they're also going to be super cautious about who they trust because if they buy something from you and it doesn't do well, not only is it bad for you financially, but it's going to hit their numbers and it's going to be bad for their career. The only reason why I'm an investor in Northbeam is because the product works so damn well. Um, you know, I learned about Northbeam from Sean and I was just got so mad at him. I was like, why are you keeping this from me? like six months of our friendship um you know there's there's no independent data source that i trust as much as northbeam and i would say as much as you know whatever you know i might make as an investor from northbeam you know frankly it would be in my best interest for no one to use northbeam because then people would be spending less money on facebook having worse efficiency and my CPMs would probably be lower. So that's my pitch for Northbeam. Don't use it. My CPMs will be way lower. I'll be way more profitable and um, I'll make way more money in my own business. Right. So Jeremy, Jeremy wants you to go out of business. So don't use Northbeam, go out of business. <laughs> we enter into a recession. Kitsch becomes the only company spending on Facebook, takes over the world, becomes the next LVMH, all because you didn't use Northbeam. Uh, global that's takeover that's plan. good read. I like that. Um, I, I think, you know, Jeremy, you made me uh, think of, so I've got an advisor. One of my uh, people that sits on my board of advisors, um, she was actually the president of Keurig for six years. Um, so like saw them go from, you know, hundreds of millions to like billions, right. And, and all retail, like there were, Keurig is just a retail monster. Even now, like you go into a Target or a Walmart and like, they don't, Keurig owns like dozens of feet <laughs> of space. <laughs> like they're that big. Right. Whereas like, we're all talking about like, man, a four foot end cap would be amazing. Keurig is like, yeah, but what about that aisle right there? Can I have like half of it? you know, to sell coffee. So she, one of the things that she's like, she's adamant about that they did early on. And I, I've heard this from multiple like legacy brands is they're very careful to not, uh, allow the distribution to outrun the brand at a national level. And that they actually approach particularly mass, um, they go geography by geography. Right. So like Keurig, when they launch, like they wouldn't actually start in like all Walmarts, they would map it to like, no, no, we want these 200 or these 300. This is where we're going to do best. And we're going to prove to you and, and Mike, to your point, like we're going to build credibility and we're going to show sell through. And then we're going to go to these other 600 and they would pick it apart. So like I'm, I'm bringing this up because for the people listening, if you're a DC brand, and Walmart is looking at you and saying like, yeah, we want to launch in like 2000 stores or 4,000 stores, whatever it is, like some constraint it in the short term will likely pay off in the long term. And this goes back to my whole like short term impatience, long term patience thing. Like you really do need to be short term patient. You need the discipline. Them. And like, yep. you know, if, if you get in regionally for Whole Foods, it's like do TV buys to drive awareness that you're in that region in Whole Foods because selling out is way more important than selling in. Yeah. Um, Jeremy. Yeah. One other point I want to make on that 
again, know your buyer success criteria. And I'll give an example. Club makes money. This is Costco and, and Sam's Club. How do they make money? Where do they make their money? Membership fees and gas. Memberships. Memberships, right. So it's like they are more or less trying to basically break even on the merchandise and make the money on the memberships. So does it matter if you sell at the rate that they want you to sell at? Yeah, it matters some. Does it matter what margins? Yeah, it matters. But you know what really matters if you can pull it off? If you are a product that they think moves the needle on people buying memberships, the world looks a lot different. We had a program this summer, a Disney collab that we did uh, in Sam's Club, and they were ready to anniversary it. When I say anniversary it, that means that they want to run it back the next year. And they were ready to run it back within like a week of it launching. And some of that obviously where the numbers were really good in terms of sell through. But a lot of it was they said, we have a whole tool that monitors social media and what members are saying. And we've gotten more positive feedback and chatter about this program than any program in a while on social media from our members. And so we absolutely want it in club again next year because what are they trying to do? They're trying to sell memberships. Yeah. Costco. We had that with Costco, Mike. We, we started, we did this like roadshow test in April and May. I think I told you guys about it. Um, so first thing that they loved was how fast we iterated. Like we would go into, te- uh, into a store, into a warehouse for 10 days, like what Jason does with Hexclad. We would do the roadshow. We would get feedback from them. And then the next set of warehouses we were in, we'd already implemented it. And they were like, what the fuck? Like, how are you guys doing this? I'm like, I don't know. Like, we, we, our DNA is we can change shit every day. So we may as well change shit every day with you too. The second part that I found really interesting was how much, uh, to your point, Mike, with club and, and Costco's, I guess the one that we're like really keen on working with, um, our social media engagement of like the number of people when we told people, Hey, we're going to be in these Costco's at these times, the comments were insane. Right. And so for the Costco people, they were like, this is incredible. Like we don't get that from a lot of our brands. Like they can't drive a new kind of person to us. So I've got a question kind of on this topic for Jeremy. Jeremy, how much walk-up demand do you get at this point? How much of it's truly like you're going and selling into and how much at this point is it kind of servicing the people that are coming to you and saying, Hey, we really, we want more of your product or we feel like we've got to carry your product. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's different in every retail environment, you know, like for example, at Walmart, like one of the best things we heard from them was like, you are driving a completely new customer to our aisle. And I think a lot of the big retailers also are kind of tired of being branded as like just catering to kind of like the lower income, you know, segment of folks. And they really want, they know, you know, a broader, you know, segment of income folks are, are shopping there, but somehow they don't have the products to attract them. So, I mean, I think that's one of the things, you know, we really, you know, what we're really excited about, but then if you, you know, pivot over to Alta, like, Every time we launch a new product, people love shopping at Alta. It's like the number one Gen Z retailer, you know, in the country. And so if we launch a new product, they're like, please tell me it's at Alta. Like we, I really want to buy it next time I go there. 
So I think I think it really, I think it really, um, it really it it's just it's like it's like I said, man, it's just like different for every, every single environment. And so like you, we end up just having to have a lot of a lot of different people at the company who are really good at at you know their their specific you know. Um, area, but at the same time, you know, can also step back and look at the big picture. I think there's one thing that's like super, super interesting for a lot of people listening that I want to talk about with, you know, retail in general is like, you're talking about space. Like when you're talking about, you know, space at retail, like in, in, in Matt, you were talking about Kurt Keurig, like that is limited, you know, space online is unlimited, but space in retail is limited. So when you start talking about enterprise value, and you start having, you know, a business that's captured, you know, like 12 feet, you know, 20 feet, whatever it is, like that's a value to other strategics. They're going to say, well, like that space is limited and I have to own this company because I can't get that space. And it's also, you know, Mike, to your point, it's like, it's almost like a bond portfolio. Like, you know, like, is it ever going to like <laughs> completely just like blow through the roof? Not as likely, but like, you know, you're, you know, whether you're in a recession or whatever, you're never going to like lose. Once you're in, you're never going to really like lose your shirt. It's very consistent revenue and it's, and it's margin consistent revenue. It's like iOS 14 came out, like everyone's margins got compressed. It'd be like if, you know, Alta came to us and they're like, yeah, we're taking 20% off your margin now. Like stuff just got harder. That, you know, that doesn't happen. These contracts are pre-negotiated. Um, so you I, said, I think those- you said bond portfolio. I think that's Sean's love language. <laughs> no, you know what? You could tell Jeremy and David are close friends because David talks about Amazon like it's real estate. It's like, you yeah. know, they're, they're treating the space as assets. And, you know, Mike brings it up all the time too. He's like, it's an annuity. He's like, I need to mm-hmm. be, that shelf space like pays me every month, right? Pays my bills. So one thing, one other thing I'll, I'll add on to what Jeremy said, there is a lot of watching what your competitors are doing that happens in physical retail. If you're running, you know, a specialty retailer, you're wondering what Sally across, you know, a, a mile away is doing and what she has on her shelf. If you're, uh, you know, a buyer at Walmart, you're thinking about, Hey, what, what is Target doing? What are some of these other competitors doing? And so one of the reasons why that matters is that they do tend to kind of gravitate toward consensus and that once you can successfully sell into one channel, all of them are going to look at that as a, as a gold star and as a validation point that they could do well with you. So one, as you get into the bigger channels, there's this report called, um, well, Nielsen. there's these aggregator services like MPD that take all that data and put it all together and then sell it for, you know, like obscene amounts of money. And the retailers all buy that data. So your report card and your performance gets seen even by buyers that you don't sell to. And what happens is if you start posting really good growth or really good numbers, then their boss starts asking them, hey, I see in our category, Simple Modern is growing really fast or is the quickest grower in our category. Why aren't we represented? And then that's when you get inbound calls. So like in the last six months, we've had quite a few inbound calls from people like Whole Foods because they are seeing the numbers and they're like, okay, I just have to be represented here. Obviously, everybody else knows something I don't. 
Well, Mike, you brought up Whole Foods. I had a question for Jeremy about about grocery because I think that is such a specific and hard thing to sell into as a non-consumable item. So I would just love to hear just a rundown of the Kroger's of the world. The, I mean, I don't know who else is in the grocery category. Whole Foods, obviously, but I would love to hear more about it. <laughs> I mean, we sell we sell in a Whole Foods, Wegmans, Sprouts, um, you know, a, a couple a couple other ones. But I would say, you know, the biggest thing you got to the the couple things in each retailer is different, like. Grocery, the things that we've that were really surprising to me were not just that you had to go through a distributor, which is basically like someone consolidates all your stuff on a truck and brings it to the store. And we're like, it's cheaper for us to just send it to like the couple hundred Whole Foods <laughs> by FedEx or UPS, like than it is to put it on the on the truck. And our products aren't perishable, so like, you know, what's the big deal? But they just have this um, infrastructure that. Like you, that's the thing about that's, that's frustrating. I think for online marketers or, you know, people who run D2C brands is like, there are these antiquated infrastructures that like are just completely not able to be changed. But I would say for, for Whole Foods, like we really, and, and for grocery, we, we really focus on wellness products we focus on like spa and sleep. And so we start to see like maybe a lot of synergies with like a, like a home spa. They put us next to the aromatherapy items, you know? And then we also take all of our products that are either, you know, um, biodegradable actually are made from like recycled materials. And so we focus them there. We have like organic scrunchies from organic cotton and things like that. But I would say like, okay, well, what is you know, what is someone, you know, if they're selling aromatherapy, like we started thinking about like, well, what complementary products or brands does our product fit well with? And so like aromatherapy was like a big one. And that's like, you know, right off of kind of the supplements and then you kind of move into aromatherapy and then you move into, you know, like our, our kitsch branded products. It's so interesting. I was just so curious, like the personal care buyer at a, at a Sprouts, like is that person high on the totem pole or low, right? Like Sprouts is selling lettuce every day. And like, is the personal care an afterthought or do they spend like a lot of time and energy thinking about it? Well, look, I think, I think that's where, look, I mean, look, all of our buyers are super, super important to us and they all play a, a pivotal role at the company. I mean, I think one of the things that retailers, you know, really don't want, you know, Walmart included is like, they don't want people having to go outside their store to buy a product because they don't have it. So they're really going to fight to include, you know, everything they can that they think, you know, a buyer is going to need to pick up, you know, when they're in their environment, they don't want someone having to go to multiple places. They want to be, you know, as much of a one-stop shop, I think for their customers, you know, as they can. I mean, obviously Sprouts is going to start selling like, you know, flat screen TVs and stuff, but like, you know, they, they really want to try to, try to capture the whole the whole picture and you look at accessories versus say the food category like everything plays a role like our accessories are way better margin products for them than you know milk for example the only okay the one thing i'd ask jeremy and i've never asked him this you know on a recorded interview but jeremy (laughs) 
what is the one tip you have for the for the young entrepreneurs listening, the the young youths of the world, right? Who who have, they have ten years to grind to get where you are. What what do you think they should focus on? What do you think they should do? Just one takeaway. Oh man, I mean, I mean, there's a great Tony Robbins quote, which I always it's just like just just resonated so much with me. It's like people overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. Like you just, you just want to think you have like the whole world to gain in a year. And then if you don't get it in a year, you're like, I'm a total failure. I'm out. But it's like, you know, or it's like that same, it's a Mark Cuban quote. It's like what, it takes 10 years to build an overnight success. Like it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you guys say this on the pod all the time. Like you have to love this and you have to love what you do because it's it really is like a it really is a 10-year game so that's okay i've got a question especially i got a question i we can cut this if you don't want this jeremy but okay so here's my question (laughs) what have you learned about running a business with your wife (laughs) oh this is a great question okay i want to hear this is a great question like you know we we met we met with this really we had my wife and I had lunch with this like really successful guy. He would basically tell he would have to like go through and do an analysis and tell like the CEO everything that like the CEO didn't want to hear, where like none of the yes men were gonna tell the CEO like this. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like exactly what I do at Kitch, except that CEO is my wife. So I basically <laughs> She doesn't want to hear every single day, but it's like, I I think for us, if you ask me, like, you know, it's, there's no one, and this is going to sound so like mushy and lame, but like, there's no person that I would rather spend time with every day than my wife. Like, she's an amazing person. And she's also, it, it works because she's like incredibly patient with me. And I think for us, we realize like we we don't like our our the business will only can only be as great as our relationship is so if we focus on having a great relationship and a really strong relationship and being better partners then the business will be great i think the other thing because i could we could do a whole podcast on working with your wife but like i think the other thing that like some like some some employees that like you know they would go to my wife and they would ask her a question she would give them a different answer and they'd go to me and then they i would get give a different answer and they were like this is so bad like you guys are giving different answers and it's like no that's actually what makes our company good it's to have two people who mm. approach things in a different way like that is a strength and mm. people also don't see that like they only see when we don't agree i'm sure you all have partners like they don't see the 99% of things that we do agree on. They only see the 1% of things that we don't agree on. So Hmm. that's what I would say about working my wife. I'm sure she's going to listen or someone's going to show her this. That's awesome. Good thoughts, Jeremy. Jeremy and his wife have a super strong relationship. David and Mary Ruth have a super strong relationship and they both run two of the best businesses. So I think if I had to do a business again, I'd definitely tap my wife in as a co-founder because these guys have made it work. All right, Jeremy, any final thoughts from you, man? 
I think I'm good, man. I think I'm good. No, I appreciate right. you guys. I really appreciate you guys having me on. I listen every week. And um, I, more importantly, I really appreciate you guys as friends. Like this just feels like, I think I just joined because I was like, oh, I get to have a longer conversation with these guys instead of like a five second text here and there with these guys. So it's been really fun yeah. chatting with you. This is actually, it's been a ton of fun, man. This like this, and I don't know, I love diving like just super deep. This felt, this episode felt like one big deep end where it's mm -hmm. like, we're just going into a topic. I learned something. I hope people listening learn something. Um, but yeah, Jeremy, thanks for coming on. This has been a blast. You're always welcome back, my bud. See you in always. chat. <laughs>